Hi, welcome to Pitt Town Church. We are so glad that you're listening to this podcast. We pray that this sermon encourages you in your walk with Jesus. If you would like more information, check out our website at www.pitttownchurch.com. Hi, I'm Sarah Irving Stonebreaker, and today I'm joined by Sam Chan. Sam and I are going to be talking about some of the big questions in life. Um, So welcome, Sam. Thanks so much for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me. So some people might not know much about you. Um, You are a medical doctor, but you also have a PhD in theology. Um, That's a really interesting combination. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. Well, the first thing you've got to know is I am a short Asian. You can't see it because I'm sitting on a stool, but I'm the shortest 1% of the population. In a room full of 100 men, I'm the shortest man in that room. I'm also Asian because I was born in Hong Kong, but my parents moved to Australia when I was just a baby. We spent two years in Darwin. Back then, that was the only way an Asian could get into Australia. We had the white Australia policy still going in the 1960s. Uh, Six years in Adelaide, and then the rest of my life in Sydney. We began life in Campbelltown, moved to Lumia, moved to Minnow. If you know Sydney, that's one station at a time on the Western Suburbs line. Then I studied high school at Trinity Grammar School, then got into medicine at Sydney University, worked for about four years as a medical doctor. One thing led to another, and I had a career change. I found myself in Bible college. I studied Bible for one year for a certificate, and a certificate became a three-year bachelor degree. Three-year bachelor degree became a five-year PhD in Chicago, and I came back to Sydney about 15 years ago, taught at a Bible college for about nine years, and these days I'm with City Bible Forum. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, there was a big career change. Sure. Can I ask you to tell me a bit about why the big career change? Uh, you know, there's so many things that, that, that were going on. Maybe a short answer was I burnt out. So after four years of working intensely as a doctor, something snapped, I just burnt out. I thought, I'll just take a year free year off work, I'll climb a mountain, find myself. But then after about a month, I thought, hey, I've studied the human body extensively, but I know so little about the Bible. Maybe I could use a year just to study the Bible. I just do a very simple certificate, you know, year, a diploma year, studied it, really enjoyed it, actually went back to medicine, started working as a full-time doctor again. And after a few months, I thought, no, I've changed. You know, this doesn't excite me anymore. What really, really excites me is uh, studying the Bible even more and teaching and speaking about the Bible to people. Wow. Why, given that you knew so much about the human body and how that works, and then the Bible was telling you, um, I guess, was it giving you another perspective on how to understand the body and how to understand life? Well, the Bible's so rich. It's 66 different books uh, written across hundreds and hundreds of years by so many different authors. So there's just so much rich wisdom and, you know, stuff on faith and spirituality in there. I felt like, you know, I could never tame it. So being a doctor, you always want to tame things. You know, you want to, you want to know the body extensively. You want to learn all the different diseases. You want to learn all the operations. But here's something, you know, I thought, well, I, I know so little. And yet this is a book that has changed the world, changed lives. I, I really do need to know this book a little bit better. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because um, as a historian of science and religion, one of the things that I often try to um, explain to my students is that there's no necessarily no necessary conflict between looking at the world scientifically, which is really an understanding of how things work, like what you were saying, and 
trying to understand some of the big questions in life. So those two things, for you at least, weren't at odds, were they? Oh, yes. Science and faith are totally compatible. And what's amazing is many, many, many scientists, like a large proportion, do have a faith. So even they don't have a problem. And all it is is uh, we actually a faith actually helps the scientific method because a faith says there is a design, there is a wisdom, there is a purpose programmed into this universe, and therefore we can trust our senses, we can look for patterns in the universe, and this universe is reliable, predictable, and repeatable. Oh, that's, that's really fascinating to hear that from your perspective um, as a medically trained doctor, because one of the things that has struck me uh, looking at the origins of modern science is that actually one of the necessary assumptions about the world in order to build the foundations of modern science was the idea that there is a God who imposes order and rationality upon the world and therefore that our senses and an experimental method might tell us something about patterns in the world. We actually need, like you were saying, we actually need that assumption in order to understand the world. It's really interesting. Yeah, you have to presume tomorrow will be exactly like today yep. to begin with. And then you have to trust that your senses are reliable. Yep. And you actually have to trust that your mind is rational and reasonable. And John Lennox once said, unless there's a rational God behind this, really what's going on here is just as random as what's going out there if everything was just random and unprogrammed. Yeah, that's right. Uh, another, just before we get to our next sure. question, just one other thing that's fascinating about this topic is that you know we've been talking about the necessarily reliable nature of our senses. Um, but actually, part of what was important for the foundations of modern science is the idea that, well, one of the reasons why we need the experimental method is that our senses, while reliable, are not perfect, are they? I mean, we, you see through a microscope or through um, medical imaging, the kind of things we can't see with our naked eye. And one of the explanations for that, or the explanation that was given in the early modern world, is that the reason our senses aren't perfect is because of sin. And so our senses and our minds are somewhat corrupted. Actually, the reason this might sound like there's not a connection, but this idea is actually the linchpin for the experimental method, because the whole reason why, so for example, the development of the microscope becomes part of modern science is that people are trying to develop instruments that are going to make up for the kind of imperfection, the corruption of our senses because of sin. So it's, yeah, that's actually really fascinating. Um, anyway, so since we've been talking about questions of meaning and significance mm. about the world, um, one of the things, you know, we're in Sydney and you've you know, immigrated to Sydney um, as a young boy. One of the things that strikes me about Sydney is, you know, we're living in this beautiful city and we seem to have so much um, in many ways compared to any kind of global standard. And yet, you know, when you talk to people, um, the, even though they seem to have a lot, in so many people, there's a kind of emptiness at the heart of it all. Can you shed any light on this question of why it is that we may have so much on a material level and yet there's this kind of persistent emptiness? Oh, yeah. I think it's just this lack of fulfilment. Like, why am I here? Yeah. So it, it's these fundamental questions like, who am I? So if we strip away a god from this universe, who am I? Well. We're just atoms and molecules. Yep. We're just another species of life on this planet. Yeah. We're just a blip in the timeline of the universe. Species come, species go. And that's what this COVID virus epidemic has exposed. Viruses come, viruses go, life comes, life goes. And at this point we think, 
is this all this is? Right? And we keep getting told we're special, but if everyone's special, then no one's special. And we even get told we're sort of in the way, like, you know, as humans, we're the ones who have messed up the planet. Life would have, this planet would be way better if we had just not been here. So suddenly you think, okay, who am I? Uh, I don't have to be here. Maybe I shouldn't be here. And so this is lostness. This is emptiness. So this is where, like, a faith really speaks into this. And the Judeo-Christian faith says, who are you? You're actually someone who's in the image of God. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, actually took on your atoms and molecules. He became one of you, you know, you know, with pimples and nasal hair and body odour. You're so important. He actually became one of you and took on your atoms and molecules. And the story goes on. You know, he died for you and he lives for you. So to answer that question, like, who am I? But also, why am I here? Where am I going? And there's this moment that hits almost every university student when they hit a campus. Like, up until now, they sort of knew why they were here. You know, their mums and dads brought them into this universe. Uh, They're meant to go to uh, high school just to study hard, get good marks, pass exams. Why? To get into university. Then they get into university and think, why? Why am I here? Where, Where is this all going? Is it just to get a job? Is it just to work, sleep, pay the bills? Like, is there a story bigger than just my own story that, that I can be part of? And I think we all need a, a sense of purpose. Why am I here to be happy? And it seems like a sense of, built into that sense of purpose is a kind of desire that their lives are meaningful. Yes, that's right. And meaning is a very freighted word. Yep. To find meaning, you have to know what your purpose is yep. and why am I here? And what have I been designed for? See, meaning actually presumes design. Yeah. So, you know, a light is most fulfilled when it's giving light. A pen is most fulfilled when it's writing because there's an inherent design in the pen and the light. But as human beings, what is our inherent design? What are we designed for? Yeah. And until we find our design, we won't find fulfillment. And again, you know, pulling the Judeo-Christian faith card out of my pocket, design presumes a designer. So we can know the God who made us. If we know our designer, then we know our design. So we're most complete, most fulfilled when we know the God who designed us. Now, I agree with that personally, but what would you say to someone who says, why do I need to have an idea of design in order to have meaning? Why can't I just find or create the meaning that I want in the world. Does that work? Yeah, because that's the typical story we are told. So this is the typical Western story. It goes like this. On the day I was born, I was as pure as I can be. That, that, that's a yep. true, real, authentic, golden me. But then authority figures mess me up. My parents mess me up. Education mess, mess me up. Religion mess me up. Politicians mess me up. Authority figures mess me up. So my goal in life is just to be true to myself, yep. do whatever it takes to be happy, yep. don't listen to what other people say, because only in the end I can be me. And if I can do that, I can re-unlock the golden me that's inside of me. And I don't need purpose. I don't need other people telling me what to do. I can create my own purpose. I am the story. Yep. And again, this is where... And it's a great story, and I love it. It's actually the story, you know... in the West that we've all enjoyed. It's the reason why we don't have to live where our parents grew up. 
It's a reason why we don't have to do the same job our parents did. Yep. It's a reason why we can find our own romantic partner, not the person that mum and dad want us to marry. Yep. We can be me. And you know, the word freedom is in almost every national anthem yep. in the Western world, USA, Canada, yep. and Australians. Yep. Let us all rejoice. Why? Because we are young and free, free to do whatever we want to do, create our own purpose. But and then here's the problem. We're free, but for what? And that's where it all falls apart. And we say, well, we can create our own purpose, yeah. but then that's like a country trying to print its own money. So when a country prints its own money, it's valueless. It actually has to be linked to something outside of the country, a, a story bigger than that country's own story. And I think that's what we suddenly realised, okay, I actually have to be part of a story bigger than just my own story. It can't just be my own story. Viktor Frankl has his book called Man's Search for Meaning. It's sold like hundreds and millions of copies. Viktor Frankl was a Jewish Holocaust survivor. And he writes a story and he says, life is all about meaning but it has to be a story bigger than just your own story. And so he gives the example. He said, let's say there are two women. One woman is rich, attractive, and popular. The other woman, through no fault of her own, gives birth to a child of profound disabilities, and she now has to sacrifice her whole life just to raise this child. He says, at the end of their lives, what would they say? This woman will say, what was all that about? I had a lot of money. I went to a lot of parties and a lot of men flirted with me. But what was that all about? Whereas this woman would say, wow, I raised a child with profound disabilities. In other words, it's a story bigger than her story. So her life is far more rich, far more meaningful because she lived for a meaning, something external to her own story. Yeah. Oh, it's fascinating that you've brought up the fact that here is Viktor Frankl, you know, writing mm. in the context of the Holocaust and in 20th century Europe. Philosophers and writers for centuries, like since the ancient world, have been kind of reflecting on this question, well, what is a meaningful life? What is, like, the good life? I mean, we have ancient philosophers talking about what the good life looks like, and it looks like different things throughout different generations. What do you say to that? I mean, what is the good life? It's fascinating because there's this guy called Robert Waldinger, Harvard professor, and he has put out a TED talk which has gone viral. I think it's the most watched TED talk of all time. And the question is, what makes a good life? And he quotes a Harvard study that has traced the lives of over 700 men over a period of more than 70 years. And they've asked the question, well, what makes a good life? And they found at the end of the seven years of these over 700 men, what led to a good life was not whether you had paid your house off or not, was not whether you had a million dollars or not, was not whether you were a CEO or not. It all came down to this, the quality of your relationships. Am I being loved and am I loving someone? And of course, not just romantic relationships, but the quality of your relationships. So somehow we've been designed to be in relationship. I think we feel most full, most rich, most flourishing when we're in relationships. Yeah. Well, I mean, as Christians, I think one of the ways that we would respond to that is talk about the fact that the ultimate relationship for which we were created is the relationship with God. I mean, how would you talk to people who um, say, okay, well, I'll have a, I have a lot of relationships and community in my life. Why do I need a relationship with God? 
Yeah. And we do enjoy a lot of relationships. I was saying some of my happiest moments, I still remember, because I remember when I was single and I was flatting with this guy and he was a Vietnamese doctor, just like me, another short Asian. And we would just look forward to the end of work and every night we'd sit in the balcony, just look at the stars, listen to jazz and blues music, feel sorry for ourselves and drink a few beers. And they were just probably the happiest times of our lives, just sitting on this balcony because... We were, we were buddies, we were mates, and it just, they were just full, fulfilling moments. Also, as a married man now, I just feel so full, so fulfilled when I just tell my wife I love her. I, and it can be in the most random places. And I guess then the question is, is there an ultimate relationship? Like, we can have buddy relationships, we can have romantic relationships, but what if there's an ultimate relationship where there's a God who made us, who loves us, who saves us, who designed us, so imagine how that relationship would be. And my church, just the other week, we did this praise and prayer worship session, but it asked the question, why do I want to worship God? Like, why I, I could be having a burrito or, I don't know, watching YouTube. Why would I want to worship God on a Saturday afternoon? And I thought, you know what it is? As a husband, when I say to my wife, I love you, I adore you. Oh, at that moment, that just feels like what my marriage is all about, to be able to worship, praise, and enjoy my wife. And I remember that one-hour praise and prayer worship session where for one hour I could just praise, worship, and praise the God who loves me and made me. I remember that one hour. I felt this is the most full, fulfilled I, I, I've sort of ever felt. That's really interesting that you talk about that in terms of fulfilment because I think that... A lot of people who grow up with some sense of this thing called religion mm. have this kind of idea that religion or going to church or whatever is something that they ought to do. And so there's a sense that we're actually in fulfilling these kind of duties, mm. quote unquote, toward God. We're doing something that reigns in our joy or fulfillment. But it seems that what you're saying is that actually it is in that relationship with God in which we are designed to feel our ultimate joy. Oh, definitely. And again, it goes down to what am I designed for? If I don't know why I'm here, what my design is, I don't think I'll ever find meaning or fulfilment. But if we've been designed by God, just to enjoy him, just to praise him, just to worship him, that's where we're going to feel most full. And sometimes tradition will help that. Sometimes it won't, but it's all about what, what's the main idea behind what we're doing. And sorry to pull out another romantic illustration, but my wife and I, we do date night once a week, every week. We've been doing it for the last 12 years, and every couple, when you tell them we do date night, they just roll their eyes like, oh, date night. Because date night can become this lifeless, soulless tradition, like what are we going to do tonight? Are we Are going to eat Thai or Italian? Are we going to do a movie? Should it be James Bond or romantic comedy? It becomes this onus, this thing that gets in the way of your week. And you can say, well, hang on. No, the whole design of date night was for you to enjoy each other. And so my wife and I, we've been able to do it once a week, every week for the last 12 years. because We just recalibrate that week. So what is the design? It's the design. And I say, to feel like I'm 18 again, and trying to win your love again for the first time. And we're going to go somewhere, and it'll be a little bit random, a little bit 
mysterious, a little bit adventurous. I won't have been there before. I won't know where to park the car. I won't know what to order on the menu. But it's just so we can enjoy each other again. And date night becomes exciting because of that. So here you can see how a tradition can work either against the relationship or for the relationship. I think religions like that, there are a lot of helpful traditions and rituals, but then when we lose focus and we focus on the rituals themselves, they become lifeless, soul-destroying. But if we think, no, no, hang on, this is designed for me, not me for it, and so help me have a flourishing, rich, fulfilling enjoyment of God, then those rituals become alive. So what's been really interesting is during the COVID lockdown, Almost every church has been, has been doing church online. And my family and I, this is the perfect time to not go to church anymore. Like, no one would know. But somehow our church, our online views are way higher than, what people, than, than how many people are in our church. And my family and I and all the friends we know, we check in every Sunday for church. It's this one ritual in the week that we look forward to and that we really enjoy. And here's the other funny thing. This is a moment where you go to any other church. Maybe there's a better, more exciting church out there with a better preacher, better music, better production quality than your church. But we keep going back to our same old church. I think there's something reassuring about that ritual, that tradition. So that here is where rituals and traditions can work for you rather than against you. Yeah. Well, if, as we've been talking about, there's a kind of there is our ultimate joy that's found in this relationship with God. Um, and yet we know when we look around us in the world that there is so much hardship and suffering. Mm. How do you bring those two things together? Yeah, so this is where I love Viktor Frankl's book again, Man's Search for Meaning, because Viktor Frankl went through a hardship almost no human being has had to go through. He went through a Holocaust, you know, a Nazi concentration camp. His wife died in that camp. He survived. He lost most of his friends there. Horrible. But then he comes up with this theory called logos therapy. Logos meaning meaning, purpose. And he says, in life, we shouldn't look for suffering, but suffering will find you. But if you find your logos, your purpose, your meaning, you actually come out of suffering a better person than you were before. So this doesn't justify, excuse, suffering or evil. But, and it doesn't mean we should search for suffering, but it makes us sort of understand how we're wired. Somehow as human beings, we are wired for design and purpose, and that's a way that we can flourish in suffering. But if we don't have design or purpose, even in the absence of suffering, we, we flounder. And Jonathan Haidt has his book. Jonathan Haidt is a Jewish atheist, secular philosopher, teaches in, in America, teaches psychology, sociology. He has a book called The Happiness Hypothesis. And he reckons we have a background level of happiness. And if we suddenly, if something pleasant happens to us, like we, we win a million dollars, or we get a car, or we get married, initially our happiness index goes up, but it's only momentary. But after only a few months, we go back to where we were before. We recalibrate. So whatever happened to us externally didn't change our happiness at all. And the opposite happens as well. Like if a tragedy happens, like a car accident, you have a disability, or there's a breakup, initially you're less happy. But after only a few months, you recalibrate. 
So we, we, happiness is something separate from what we do, from what we own, and what happens to us. And we know this at New Year's Eve, because you know New Year's Eve is the most oh, bittersweet night of the year, because we know we should be having fun. This of all nights is when I should be happy. New Year's Eve, I need to be happy. And so we go from party to party, house to house, looking for the perfect party so I can be happy. And there's always this bittersweet moment where we think, oh, I'm not finding it. This isn't it. This isn't it. Well, what is it? Well, there's a TED talk by Sophie Scott. She's a neuroscientist. And she looks at the science of laughter. And she found out as human beings, we're 20 times more likely to laugh at something if we're with someone that we know and trust. So it's not what's happening to us that makes us laugh. It's actually who we're with. And it's the same with the New Year's Eve party. We're actually looking for the right person to share the moment with. So it's not what we do, not what the music is, not what we're eating or drinking. It's who we're with. And so back to the whole happiness, design, suffering thing, if we can be just there sharing the moment, whether it's a happy moment or a suffering moment, and that's why we visit people in hospital, so they're not suffering alone. We're sharing the moment with them. So somehow life has been designed to be shared. Again, we have to be part of a bigger story than just our own story. So we've been talking a lot about relationships and relationships and happiness and meaning and fulfillment. You've studied theology and it's Christian theology. What difference does Jesus make to all of this? Well, when Jesus was around, his religious opponents used to complain, Jesus, you're religious. You should be miserable. How come you're not fasting and praying all the time? Instead, you're just eating and drinking and going from party to party. And Jesus' answer was, because I'm here. The bridegroom is here. Now is the time for partying. In other words, I am here. I'm here to share the moment with you. And that, that's a secret of life, knowing that we're, to, we're here not just to share our lives you know, with our buddies or romantic partners, but in the end with Jesus. And what's fascinating is in the Bible there's a book called John, and John chapter 1 calls Jesus the Logos. He's the purpose. Just like Viktor Frankl discovered life is all about Logos therapy. We need purpose. The Bible's claim is, well, this purpose, the Logos, is Jesus. He became flesh. He became one of us. And back to how at New Year's Eve, we're actually looking for the perfect person to be with. We thought life was all about what we do, what we own, or what, you know, what we get to achieve. But in the end, no, 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 Jesus ain't, no, it's who you get to share this life with. And Jesus becomes one of us so he can share the moment with us. So in the end, ultimate happiness, ultimate fulfillment, ultimate purpose is found in sharing our lives with Jesus, being loyal to him, trusting him that he knows best and, and following him. Yeah. And it's, I mean, you talked about those examples of where Jesus is with the people who are celebrating and he, bring, he is life to the fullest um, in and of himself. Um, but I think a lot of people, when they hear the way in which Jesus enables us to experience ultimate joy, I think it's good to kind of remind ourselves, well, that ultimate joy is found in him. It doesn't necessarily fit into our own kind of our own world, our own society and culture's understanding of what happiness or joy looks like. Because Jesus also knew suffering, didn't he? Mm. So we, we all think happiness is found in freedom. 
the freedom to do whatever I want to do. But the ancient Greeks would say, no, that's not true freedom. That's animal freedom. You're like a pig in mud at that moment. But true freedom is not the freedom to do whatever I want to do. It's the freedom to do what I should be doing. And if I can be sharing my life with Jesus, then that is true freedom and true happiness. And that's a happiness, a contentment that can survive despite the most amazing suffering. So the Bible's promise to us isn't that it will take away our suffering, but Jesus will be with us in our suffering. He even suffered alongside with us. We also know there's a chapter still to come where Jesus will remove suffering. So we know we are part of a story. There is meaning, even though we can't see it exactly at the time. But I remember as a parent the day my first child was born and I remember holding my child in my hands, you know, day zero of this new person's life. I thought, what have we done? Like, we have brought a child into this world. And being a medical doctor, I'm starting to think like a doctor, like you have a one in three chance of getting cancer. You've got a high chance you're going to break a bone playing sports and you're going to get your heart broken by a girl one day. And there's nothing I can do to take away that suffering, but I'll be with you in your suffering. And we have a God who can take away our suffering, but he doesn't. But we know he's a loving God. He's a powerful God. So we just got to trust he's got a loving, powerful reason. So again, purpose for what's going on. And it must be so loving, so powerful that Jesus came to share that moment of suffering with us so we don't suffer alone. Same reason why we visit friends in hospital, so they don't suffer alone. Jesus shares a moment with us, dies our death for us, and one day there's a chapter to come where he'll take, take away all suffering. Yeah. And when you say he dies our death for us, well, that is the ultimate suffering, isn't it? I mean, Jesus, I always love reading the accounts of Jesus's life and then his death and then reminds me that you know, he's betrayed by his friends. He is at a moment of such grief and terror about the fact that he knows that he is going to die. I mean, this is a God, this reminds me, who knows suffering because he's inhabited suffering for us. Yeah, I have friends posting on Facebook, you know, their daughter is in hospital, their daughter's going for an operation. And even though it's a minor operation, it just breaks every parent's heart. And they so wish they could swap places with that child so that child doesn't have to go through that suffering. And that's exactly what Jesus does for us. I remember being in America when Mel Gibson's controversial movie, The Passion of Christ, came out. And it was controversial because everyone thought, Oh, it's just so violent. It was unnecessarily violent. But everyone missed it. I remember because early on in the movie, Mel Gibson flashed up a verse from the Bible and said, by his stripes we're healed, meaning Jesus is actually suffering your suffering for you in your place. So you don't have to go through what he's going through right now. And, you know, for the next two or three hours, it's just violence. You know, Jesus is going through the most horrific, horrific suffering but no one understood the meta story don't you get it he's doing this for you so we don't have to go through the the suffering that he's going through yeah can you remind us I mean what is this meta story why does Jesus have to suffer the meta story is there's a God who loves us who made us but and this is the controversial bit that people don't like we love that he loved us he made us bit but he also saves us well what's he saving us from we could say well he's saving us from ourselves He's saving us from this world. But in the end, we're also not the people God needs us to be. We fall short 
and in some way we have broken this relationship with God. We're on the out. And so somehow where we're not right with this God as well, who loves us, who made us, but God steps in and he saves us by dying the death we should have died. It's like when you uproot a plant out of its soil, it's dead, even though it looks alive, but it's just, it's dead, it will shrivel and die. The Bible's story for us is we, we have cut ourselves off. There's a God who loves us, who made us, but we're not worshipping him. We've cut ourselves off from this life source. Jesus comes to swap places with us, but more than that, to live in us and become this new life source. The Bible has two powerful metaphors. One is that Jesus suffers for us in our place, but the other one is he now lives in us uh, uh, to restore us, to clean us, to make us more and more into the people we want to be and the people that God needs us to be. Yeah. Well, in a, in a couple of sentences, I mean, why do you find Jesus so compelling? I think the whole of life is we go on a journey looking for meaning. And in the end, who am I to say that my journey is any better than your journey? But we're actually just fumbling in the dark. That's why we say things like that. Well, who am I to say? Well, we don't know. But Jesus is compelling because he comes to us and he speaks and he says, I'm Logos, I'm meaning. I think that's what's compelling, that he came so I don't have to search for him anymore. Yeah, and he says life with him is life to the fullest. Yeah. Sam, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. So if anything there has sparked your interest um, or maybe you still have questions and you'd like to learn more about the Bible and learn more about Jesus, we are running a course called Introducing Jesus and you can head to our website for more information.